0: Hey, everybody's awake. Even Jim, I think, is maybe awake out there. Those of you who may, may, some of you may not know this, but Jim drove back from Ohio last night, nine hours the entire way. Got home at three this morning. So if you see him doing the jello neck head bob back there, uh, give him a little grace, all right? Um, (laughs) We're going to be talking about uh, church discipline this morning. And discipline is not a subject that most of us are really that excited about generally, uh, discipline is something that is a lot of times perceived negatively by most people when you talk about it. Um, but discipline is meant to be God's blessing and his gift to the church. And we're going to talk about that uh, here in a little bit. But I want to just share some examples of discipline that are positive. Um, because discipline is a good thing, whether it's something high and holy like a church or whether it's something more mundane like a sports team. Uh, and most of you know that if you've been around a while, you know that I, am a, I, I love movies. I'm a sucker for a good movie. I, I, my, one of my favorite movies, I'll just tell you, uh, it, it's, and there's multiple versions of this movie. I've seen most of them. But this, this, one of my favorite movies of all time is this. A stranger comes to town who's not like anybody else in town. And he brings a set of alien values to the community that he moves into. And things, he begins to do things in a way that are totally unlike people are used to. And they start to say things like, well, we haven't done it that way before, and this will never work, and whatever. But he wins over The young people of the community, or she in some cases, wins over the young people of the community, and they begin to follow this person, this leader who has come in, and the leader takes them to greatness. I've watched multiple versions of that movie, okay? Some of you, my favorite version of it, movie Hoosiers. How many of you have seen it? Okay, as a Hoosier boy, you, you lose your citizenship in Indiana if you do not watch this movie and love it. Okay, um, it's my—it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's the story of the 1954 Milan Indians. One of the smallest schools in the state of Indiana is Milan, Indiana. It's a little bitty town. They had eight guys on their basketball team total. They did not. It was a lonely bench. <laughs> all right. And um, there's only 54 boys in the entire high school. They have eight guys on the team. And, uh, And they learn under Coach Marvin Wood, played by Gene Hackman. They learn discipline. They learn shooting. But they learn shooting after they have learned how to dribble, how to pass, how to set the picket fence. Remember that great scene in the movie? Ooh, got hung up there. Um, there's that great scene in the movie where they swing the picket fence and they tell him, don't get caught watching the paint dry, right? And it's a great movie, and he leads them to greatness through discipline. Or how many of you have seen the movie Remember the Titans? I love that movie. Uh, It's the story of Coach Herman Boone, who led the T.C. Williams High School football team to the Virginia State Championships very first year that he was the coach. He was a black head coach of what had been a white high school. And the school, and this was the early 70s, had recently very grudgingly integrated and contained both black and white students. And the the title of the movie comes from a line by the white assistant coach who's the defensive coach and they're playing against this team led by a racist former you know racist football coach who was a hall of fame coach on the other team and he said he said our team we specialize in knocking the chocolate off of folks not a very nice thing to say and this white assistant coach says you go out there you blitz all night i don't want them to gain a yard and you hit them as hard as you can hit. I want them to remember forever the night they played the Titans. Right? And they win. And they go on and they win the Virginia State Championship in football. And they, they actually win several times under Coach Herman Boone. And they learn to have discipline and have respect for one another and to even become a community. There's the discipline of this coach. And I could go on. There's lots of movies. You know, Glory Road, which tells the story of the very first all-black starting basketball team in the NCAA, Texas Western University, that went on to win the NCAA championship. Uh, or this, the movie Miracle, which tells the story of the 1980 uh, United States Olympic hockey team, which beat the Russians. Remember? Some of you who are old enough remember, and that's where that chant "USA, USA, USA" got started. Because you know, here we have the um, you know the Russians back at that time had some some of the world dominant Olympic athletes. Uh, you know, where they had women on their hockey team that I couldn't take at arm wrestling. All right, <laughs> um, and uh, and we were not supposed to win, and we did. And the movie Miracles about that. Or you, you've seen uh, maybe Dangerous Minds where um, Michelle Pfeiffer plays a schoolteacher who goes into an inner-city school and learns and is able to teach the kids literature and poetry. Or one of my other favorite movies, Stand and Deliver, about Jaime Escalante, who went into the worst public high school in Los Angeles, one of the worst... Uh, neighborhoods. And he taught the kids calculus. Taught them AP calculus. They took the AP calculus exam. The very first year, they only had a few students pass. But after Mr. Escalante had been there for several years, somewhere between one-third and one-half of the Hispanic students in the entire country that passed the AP calculus exam were his students. Taught them discipline. And they learned to follow and to be formed by discipline and advance to greatness. And we love stories like that, and we celebrate achievements like that even decades later. How long ago was 1954, after all? Or we look back on, uh, in, in a military context on the men who crawled through the sand at Iwo Jima or the men who stormed the beaches at Normandy Decades, even generations later. One of the great speeches of uh, my growing up years was Ronald Reagan's speech at Pont du Hoc. Remember? Where the fiercest, nastiest fighting were. And the men of Pont du Hoc sat in front of President Reagan and he said, These are the boys who gave their lives. These are the boys Pont du Hoc. And we memorialize and we celebrate bravery and discipline, and we give it honor, and we should, because discipline is a good thing, and it can lead us to greatness. And it produces, by those who have been trained by it, lasting joy and peace and contentment, even decades later. And it produces people, men and women, who are worthy of being celebrated. And so as we talk about discipline this morning, I just want to set the scene a little bit. And first of all, I'll tell you that discipline, when we, when we uh, engage in it, is all about love. If you have your outline, that's the first point. Discipline is all about love. Uh, a lot of you, even though I'm trying as best I can to set the context of discipline being a positive thing... A lot of you have had experiences maybe in your life that where you think of church discipline as a legalistic or a harsh or a judgmental process. It's not meant to be. It's meant to be all about love because proper discipline originates with God himself. And in the Scripture, if you look at the Scripture, you'll see that discipline is always presented as being something which is done and which Uh, is meant to be received as a sign of love in a relationship. Let me just give you a couple of verses here. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, The Lord disciplines those he loves. Revelation, John records Jesus saying, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. In Psalm 94, the psalmist writes, Blessed is the man you discipline, O Lord, the man you teach from your law. Yet, we all know that discipline in the church, uh, as well as in other arenas of life, whether it would be with a sports team or with a a teacher in a classroom or in a military setting or even in a home, is not always done in a biblical, God-honoring, loving way. But my desire this morning is to turn to the Scriptures and to help us all to see with fresh eyes the kind of discipline that God wants us to enact with one another in our church, and not just um, within the within the context of us as a congregation, but in our, in all of our relationships, uh, whether those be work relationships or whether those be family relationships or whatever relationships you have, there's there's some helpful things here. Uh, how do you deal with somebody in a loving way? How do you bring correction? from sin into somebody else's life. So before we get into the formal process here in Matthew 18, I want to just also say this that 99% of church life, 99% of church life involves what's called formative discipline. And formative discipline are the things that we do which are we're not being corrected necessarily, but The things that we do that shape us in a direction. And everything that you do, whatever it is, whether good or bad, changes you over time to be a certain way. And we all understand that in the physical realm, right? That if you subsist on ho-hos, mountain dew, and Doritos, that you will be formed in a certain way, right? Um, You know, I've made the joke before that... uh, you know, people talk about getting back in shape, and I go, round is a shape. It is, right? Um, round is a shape. I'm in a shape, right? Um, and if you, Whereas if you, um, if you have certain other habits of going to the gym and of eating your vegetables and limiting your amount of sweets and protein and fat, Then you will be shaped in a different way, right? We all understand that. Uh, When when we're in a church setting, the things that we do form us in a certain way, and and in the best sense, they form us in a positive way to look like Christ. Let me just share with you uh, from Acts chapter two, verse forty-two to forty-seven. These are these are some of the things that the early church did to form their members. You ready? All right. Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's a character that's being shaped by these activities, right? They're taking in the apostles' teaching. They're giving. That's what it means when it says they devoted themselves to the fellowship, I think, that they're contributing, to the needs of the community. They're sharing with one another their possessions. They're taking the sacraments or the ordinances, whichever term you happen to prefer. Uh, Celebrating communion, baptizing uh, new believers. They're uh, meeting together in both a large group setting, because they met in the temple courts, and they also met in homes, small group settings. Right? We... Uh, We try in our church to do the same kinds of things. We have a large group thing here on Sunday morning. We have small group stuff throughout the year and uh, through the week. We have uh, devotion to the apostles' teaching. We have a participation in communion and baptism. Uh, We have a devotion to the apostles' teaching, right? We spend a big chunk of every week looking at the scriptures. Why? Because uh, there's... There's no purpose for gathering here if you're just going to listen to the ramblings of this enlightened person, right? Um, I'm not that enlightened. I'm not that smart, to be real honest, okay? But God's Word has something of eternal value for us to study and look at. Um, And these things form us in a direction that as we participate in the life of of the church community, that forms us and shapes us into a certain kind of person. And 99% of church life is about that kind of formative, shaping discipline. But occasionally, we all need what's called corrective, or maybe the better term would be restorative, discipline. And that's the focus of what Jesus was talking about in the passage that Bob and Diane read, about restorative or corrective discipline. Uh, It's a process of helping to restore somebody is broken by sin to their relationship with god and to the relationship with you or with others in the church or with the church community as a whole and uh, we don't always faithfully uh, follow the lord we don't always easily get along with one another but jesus lays out a process for how we do that and we're going to look at that process here in a minute but as before we do that i want to just look at one more thing and if you look at this passage, I want, to see, I want you to see what's called what I'm going to call the bookends of love in this passage. He's got one at the front and one at the end. Okay? Look, at look at what he says at the front. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he's happier about that one. That one sheep then about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. What's to be the attitude when we engage in corrective or restorative discipline? A desire of seeking out the one who is lost and the one who has wandered off. Right? The idea is one of shepherding. And Jesus says that in the church that that's what we're to be like as we approach one another. When someone sins against us, we're to see them not as a horrible person, but as a sheep who has wandered off, who has strayed from the right path, and our desire is to shepherd them back, right? To go in search of that person and to bring them back into right fellowship with God and with us as we're... You know, as we're able to do so, right? Then at the other end of the passage, you've got the other bookend. Where Peter says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And he says, up to seven times? And, you know, the interesting thing when Peter asks that question is this. The rabbis taught that you had to forgive somebody for the same offense three times, but after that you could hate them. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So Peter doubles the rabbis and throws an extra one in for good measure (laughs) and says, how about seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times. And there's an interesting parallel passage to this. Going back to Genesis, I believe it's chapter 5. In Genesis, uh, God tells Cain that if anyone kills him, that he will be avenged seven times, and Lamech, who is the seventh generation from Cain, says this. He brags. First of all, Cain was a murderer. Lamech is proud of it. Okay, Lamech says, "I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech will be avenged seventy-seven times. So, in other words, if if it's we're going to go way beyond the, the boundaries of justice here. It's not just eye for an eye. It's, it's everybody in the village eyes. Um, we're going to go way beyond justice. Now, Jesus turns that calculation on its head, and he says, not seven times, but 77 times, you're to forgive. And by the way, I don't think that Jesus intends for us to, like, keep track. Forgive you once, that's one. That's two. Okay, you're up to 15. When you get to 76, boy, I'll really get it precise here, you know. No, the idea is as often as someone sins against you, you're you're to extend forgiveness. Right? That you're not to keep track. And so you've got shepherding and love and forgiveness on both ends of this. And I think Jesus puts those in precisely because he's meaning for us to understand this process not as one that's harsh or vindictive or hateful, but as one that is meant to be shepherding and loving and caring for the person and their needs. Okay? So let's look at the process here. Uh, Step number one. Well, actually, I need to back up a step. Um, But step number one is this. To uh, overlook when somebody sins against you as much as possible. Okay? That is a biblical thing. Peter says let love cover a multitude of sins. Right? Proverbs nineteen eleven says it is through the glory of a man to overlook an offense. In other words, a lot of times we get in conflict with people and it's not it's not a sin issue necessarily, it's a personality conflict or it's uh they're just they're just kind of that way, but it's not really necessarily a sinful thing. Pastor Jim gave the example of his roommate who's a obsessive compulsive in his words, neat freak. You know, like as soon as you set the can down on the on the table, you know, his roommate is there. Why didn't you throw that away? <laughs> okay, um you know where it's not really wrong that the guy is that way, he's just kind of that way, okay um it's not necessarily sin, it's just a personality conflict, and as much as possible, we need to give people grace and overlook some of the idiosyncrasies and foibles and flaws and and sinful but maybe not serious, maybe not soul-destructive behaviors that people engage in. So where you can't overlook. But if you can't overlook it, and, and I think, and by that I mean this, okay, it's been a week, and I'm still ground about it. <clears throat> you know, and I'm just, I'm dying to talk to somebody about this, and I want to gossip about it with somebody else. And rather than do that, I need to go talk to this other person and deal with it, with them, privately. Um, Jesus says, just between the two of you. The world says, you know, well, live and let live. Just, um, just let it go. You know, Or, well, just don't relate to them anymore. Or be tolerant or whatever. But Jesus says, look here. Go privately, just between the two of you. He says, go and show him his fault. And the idea is one of, I want to I restore my relationship with this person. I don't want to do this out of a spirit of being a busybody, as we all know that people contend that way sometimes. Oh, I see somebody has sinned. I need to go and talk to them. That's not really the idea. The idea is there's a personal offense against you, and you want to go and help them to deal with this and walk with them in the process. Let me share you, with you a story, um, give you another, another context where you see somebody in the, in the body of Christ who you know is doing something that is absolutely going to destroy their life in a, in a major way. Uh, years ago, I had a friend who uh, left town, left his home and his marriage, and was spending a few days away thinking over whether he would get a divorce. And the guy's wife came to me and said, this is what's going on. And I got him on the phone, and I said, look here, dude, um, (laughs) this isn't going to work. He was tired of fighting with his wife, he was tired of his life, tired of... The circumstances he was in, he just decided, I'm going to move somewhere else and start over. No, that isn't going to work. I'm your friend, and let me exhort you with all the love of Christ. You need to go home, son. You need to go home. You need to repent before your wife or even thinking about this. You need to get right with God on this. And you need to get right with her, and you need to try this over. And by God's grace, not by my eloquence for sure, okay, by God's grace, he listened to what I had to say. And he went home. And he and his wife are still married. They have a couple of kids. They have a good family life. They're still in church at the same place. But I don't know what would have happened if I had been less of a friend to him because I was the only person who knew this was going on. And a good friend and someone who cares about you would do that for you, would physically grab you or get a hold of you in some way and say, dude or sis, let me tell you, you can't do this. You can't do this. It's destructive. It will destroy your life. This will be the worst, most life-offering choice you could possibly make if you continue down this road that you're on. And hopefully, that's as far as it goes, whether it's a a relatively minor thing just between the two of you or whether it's something that's just totally life-destructive, like this friend that I had. The loving thing to do is to confront the person. It is not loving if you can't let it go. And if it's too big to overlook, and going to hurt them and hurt their family, the loving thing to do is to go to them and confront them in it, not to let it go. Um, but if they won't listen to just you, what if they, what if they won't? You know, what if they say, "Ah, you're full of mud" or whatever? Um, what do you do then? Well, the world would say, "Well, you did the best you can." write them off, or they would tell you, well, go talk to your spouse, go talk to your friends, go talk to your hairdresser, go talk to 55 other people except them. Don't ever go talk to them because then they might actually change and fix it, but it's much more fun to gossip. And if you follow that advice, you can successfully destroy the other person's reputation and greatly lessen the chances that they will ever change or ever repent. So there's a bonus, right? Um, (laughs) What does Jesus say? Jesus says, try to keep this as private as possible. If it doesn't work with just you, then take one or two others along so that every matter may be dealt with in the presence of two or three witnesses, right? Right? And the purpose is not to just have somebody else who is there as an ally with you to say, see what a horrible person they are? No. It's, to, it's for, to have them be there as an objective third party. To first of all see if you are making a big deal out of nothing, which might be the case, or to be able to tell them as an, as an objective voice, say, look, you hurt this person. You know, I, I know you, I care about you, I know you don't want to be deliberately hurtful. Can you see what's going on here? And maybe they can say it in a different way or hear what the other person is doing in a different way, and the idea is to bring the two of you together and to help the sinning person or sinning people, as the case might be, to repent and be restored. But what if that doesn't work? Uh, The world says, well, we've done all we can, shake the dust off your feet, remember not to cast your pearls before swine, Um, we'll just be done with this whole thing, we've done all we can. But what happens when we simply give up on somebody? Say, well, you of us tried to talk to them, but they just are going to continue on their way. Well, usually what happens if we give up on somebody in those circumstances is that they just continue in their sin. It leads to further grief and misery in their life. And very often they continue to inflict harm on other people in addition to themselves. And so Jesus says if they won't listen to the two or three that you bring, I mean the one or two that you bring with you, then to tell it to the church. Now, I think, I think the ideal thing is to keep the group always as small as possible, okay? Um, and remember, too, this is not a checklist. Okay, well, I talked to them once, and they didn't change, so I took two people with me, and they didn't change, and so I'm going to go to the next thing. It may take, maybe you make multiple attempts at each level, um, but when you're t- at the point of, okay, we need to tell it to the church, then I think, ideally, you'd start with the, the elders and the, the pastoral staff and say, this is the situation, this is what we've done to try to resolve things, can you help us? And ideally, that's as far as it goes, where you're able to, um, to solve the situation at that level uh, you know, that the hope is at each one of these points that the person repents and turns and changes and is restored. Because the goal of this process is not the abuse or uh, mistreatment of the person who is in error. It's the restoration and building up of this person and helping them to be more like Jesus, as we all should want to be. And so, okay, well... Well, we're going to take it to the church leaders, and then maybe you maybe you also at that level include maybe their small group, if that if just the church leaders doesn't work, or you include some other people. Ultimately, um, it may require notifying the entire church if it's something that's affected the entire church. You have to stand up and say, "Okay, this is the situation." Um, our previous ministry, we were in. A, Karen and I were in a situation like that where we had a um, a person in our church who had left their family uh, for another person, and we had walked through all the confrontation steps. And the person still refused to repent, still refused to be reunited with their family, uh, and still refused to leave the other relationship they were engaged in. And at that point. Um, after all of that, and this was over a period of four or five months of trying to to get them to repent and change. Then the next step has to come into play, and we did tell it to the entire church, and we said, now, in your interactions with this person, um, we want you to do a couple things. Number one, we want you to be gracious. Number two, we want you to encourage them to repent And number three, we want you to hold out to them the gospel. And the reason that you start holding out to that person the gospel is that they are behaving as an unbeliever. And if they are behaving as an unbeliever, there's a possibility they may actually be an unbeliever. And that's why Jesus says if they refuse to listen even to the church... Treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. What he means is treat them as if they are a non Christian. And by the way, let me say this too that if it gets to that point and you are the person who is being confronted, and it gets to the point where the entire church now has been informed of your sin, it's serious enough that it's gotten to that level and you have refused to repent. And let me say to you with all the love of Christ that you need to very, very seriously examine your heart to find out if you are in the faith, to find out if you are actually a believer. Because the fact is, is that a person who knows Christ and loves Him has the Holy Spirit of God within him or her and will normally when confronted with sin, be have the conviction of the Holy Spirit within their heart that tells them, I need to get right on this. And if that's not happening where you refuse to be restored even after it has gone through this whole process, then you really need to be in fear for whether you ever really placed your faith in Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that if you sin, you've, you've lost your salvation. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that if you um, sin repeatedly in the same way, that you, know, you can doubt whether or not your salvation is secure. I'm not saying that either. But I am saying that there is a possibility that a person who made a profession of faith in Christ might not actually possess real life-changing life. And, I, and by the way, that's not a concept I came up with on my own. Remember, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Peter says, Just like a dog returns to his vomit, and a swine that is washed, or it goes back to wallowing in the mud, People reveal what their true nature is by how they behave. And if someone refuses to repent after being repeatedly confronted even by their church body, then it's a possibility they may not be a believer. And we need to carry out with them um, this idea of treating them as, as if they are an unbeliever. Where there's a disciplinary aspect to that, you know, where if they're in in a leadership position or if they possess a, a voting membership in our church, that we would revoke that. But we would also say to them, you need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to confess your sin to him, recognize your sinfulness, and be forgiven. Because lack of repentance is evidence that you're don't really belong to jesus and that scares us and we're in fear for you of what may happen if you continue in unrepentant sin now again it's not that the person lost their salvation but did they really have it to begin with unrepentant sin over a long period of time is evidence to the contrary that they don't really know the lord But then you get down to step six, right? Ideally, somebody... um, I'm, I'm sorry, step five. Forgive the person. Forgive the person. Ideally, they repent somewhere along the way, either just between the two of you, or with the three of you, or with the leadership, or then with the larger group in the church, and then with the whole church. Uh, somewhere along the way, ideally, they repent. And then our responsibility is to extend forgiveness. Wherever that happens, our responsibility is to extend forgiveness and to forgive as Jesus Christ has forgiven us. Right? We don't have time for it today, but the, the rest of Matthew 18 is the parable of the unmerciful servant. Remember that one? Or if you put it in today's terms... The unforgiving servant was forgiven by his master something like $8 billion and refused to forgive his fellow servant a few hundred bucks. And Jesus says, You need to forgive as you've been forgiven and to recognize that the scale of someone's sin against you compared to the scale of their sin against God and of your sin against God doesn't even compare. And so whenever they repent, forgive. Whenever they repent, forgive. Uh, God says, forgive your brother from your heart up to 77 times. In other words, as often as they sin, even if it's in the same way. Forgive your brother every time they repent. Now, what's my point in all of this? My point is is that discipline is God's gift and blessing to the church. This is really meant to produce blessing in individual people's lives and blessing in our church as a whole and in the church of God around the world as a whole. Uh, Discipline used to be something that all churches did. And somehow in our American Uh, independence and freedom from hierarchy and rules and all of that, we've lost the idea of having church discipline be a part of church life. But historically, the Reformers said that there are three things where you can identify a church. The faithful preaching and teaching of God's Word. The The faithful administration of, they use the term sacraments, you know, baptism and communion. And the faithful exercise of church discipline, both formative and corrective. And that where those three things are present, you have a real church. And if any one of them is not present, there's something, something different that's there. It's something, and it's important, but it's not necessarily a church. And they have to all be there because um, that's how Jesus characterizes and describes and expects the church to be. Now, this last May, the elders and I stood up here in front of you and confessed to all of you that we've not done a good job of enacting the corrective and restorative aspects of church discipline in our church, and that is, um, that is something we're committed to changing, okay? Okay? I just want to go on record again one more time as we're talking about this. But it's also something that we as a church and as individuals need to be aware of too and be committed to changing because discipline is meant to be God's blessing and gift to us as a church and as individuals that uh, when we're confronted that we change. And when we need to do some confronting that we do so in a loving way and with a loving attitude Because our goal is to help one another come closer to Jesus and to look and act and speak and think more like him every day. That's the point of church, right? And if we do this, if we accept the blessing that God wants to give us in this, just think about what could happen. Think about the fact that in our culture, 35% of Christian marriages end in divorce which is worse, by the way, than among pagans. Theirs is 29%. Ours is worse. If church discipline were exercised in places where a couple is headed toward divorce, maybe some of those could be averted. Maybe some of those families and the destruction that that brings to children could be averted. Maybe, by God's grace... We could help people from, to prevent them from going down the road into destructive sin, into, further into an addiction, or into a pattern of behavior which is going to cost them their family or their job or their relationship with God. But regardless, and bottom line, we show respect as we engage in effective discipline. We show respect for God's character and holiness and the fact that he wants us to be holy as he himself is holy. So, let's take God at his word when he says the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Right? right? Let's pray and ask God to help us. God, our Father...